What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John, and I want to remind you why John wrote this Gospel, so that as we continue to study through it, we come back to the main purpose, the main reason for you know what he ultimately uh, wrote this for. And he tells us that in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The ultimate purpose that John has in writing this gospel is like, I want to prove something. I want to prove that Jesus is God. And as I do that, I hope that two wonderful things will happen for everyone who reads this gospel. The first thing is that it would help people believe that Jesus is God. And second, that it would enable people to have life in His name. And those go hand in hand. You can't have life in his name until you first believe in who he is, as we looked at last week. And so that's the ultimate goal that John has with this gospel. He wants people to believe that Jesus is God and then get saved. Now, in order to accomplish this goal, John starts off telling us several very important things about Jesus. But instead of using that term, uh, Jesus, he uses this term, the word. Uh, as we looked at last week, it's the Greek term, the, the logos. And, and he uses that for a specific reason because both the Jews and Greeks of his time, they had an understanding of that. The, the Jews kind of looked at the word as something that was really kind of God himself. And the Greeks thought that was more of the, the, the force behind everything that, you know, ultimately brought, um, order. And, and so John uses this to, to meet where they're at and explain in terms that they already understood to better grasp Jesus. And in the first 13 verses that we looked at last week, John reveals six amazing things about the Word, six amazing things about Jesus Christ. First, that He is the eternal triune God. Second, that He is the creator of everything. Third, He is life. Fourth, He is the light. Fifth, he came to the world that he created to be a light and to give his life. And sixth, he allows people to be children of God who believe in him and receive him. Now, these are all amazing things that what John reveals to us about Jesus Christ. But, you know, if you had a skeptic, you know, kind of reading the beginning of this, you know, they they would say, well, yeah, that's great that you can make these claims about Jesus, claim that he's eternal, claim that he's the triune God, claim that he's the creator, claim that he's life and light and and that he can give, make you a child of God if you believe in him. That's nice to claim that, John, but do you have any proof? Do you have any evidence to back that up? Do you have any reason for why we should believe these claims that you're making about Jesus? If we were to take these six claims that that John brings up here and, and go into a court of law before a judge and a jury, is there enough evidence for the judge and jury to conclude that Jesus is God? Well, the answer to that question is, yes, there is. There's overwhelming evidence. And that's one of the things I love about the the Gospel of John is that John, in writing this, that's kind of the way in which he lays this out. As we noted, it's not a chronological you know, uh, thing that we see with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't just start with the birth and then end with the death of Jesus. He, He picks specific things that he wants to share with us. And these things are really picked specifically to prove that Jesus is God. And he uses three main things to help prove this. First, he uses what he calls seven signs. 
They're miracles, but he refers to them as signs because signs point to something. They're pointing to Jesus' deity. He could have picked a lot of different miracles. He chooses these seven because he recognizes only God could do this. And so I'm using these to point to the fact that Jesus is God. He shares with us seven I am statements of Jesus Christ about himself, all of which Jesus is declaring, I am God, ultimately. And he also shares with us Seven witnesses, seven people that he brings to testify to the fact that Jesus is God. And this morning, we're going to look at the first witness that John introduces us to, the first testimony of the first witness, and that first witness is John the Baptist. So I want you to picture with me a courtroom. Jesus is on trial The goal of this trial is to prove whether or not Jesus is God. And John, the author of this gospel, he is the defense attorney. He's the one defending Jesus. He's the one trying to bring the evidence to prove that Jesus is God. And if we take that picture, what we just looked at last week would be John's opening statement. Here are six things that Jesus is. I want to just start with this, and I'm going to expound and give evidence upon it as we continue on. But I want the jury, I want the judge to understand who I'm speaking of. And now John's going to call his first eyewitness to the fact that Jesus is God. And that first eyewitness is John the Baptist. And so, John, come on down and and take this stand. Uh, You're going to now share the testimony that you have with everyone so that they can know the truth that Jesus is God. And so I want to encourage you to put yourself in the place of the jury this morning. As you listen to John the Baptist's testimony, I want you to examine it. I want you to think through it. Is what he says and what he saw evidence that helps prove that Jesus is God? And so in the first 13 verses, John shares six important things about Jesus. But now as we come to Verse 14, we have this transition that John is making. He's transitioning from who Jesus is to what people personally witnessed about Jesus. So a transition from who Jesus is to these eyewitness testimonies that are going to prove who Jesus is. And so let's start with what John shares with us in verse 14 of chapter 1. It says this, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So once again, John tells us something about the Word. He's been saying the Word, the Word. He gave us those six things about the Word. Well, now he adds two more to the list. So now we have seven and eight. And both of these things are very important. So the first thing he says is the Word became flesh. What John means by that is the word Jesus Christ, he became one of us. He took upon himself human flesh. Now, this is very profound. This is a, a, an important statement that we refer to as the incarnation. God leaving heaven, becoming a man and dwelling among us. Now, back in verse 10, John tells us that Jesus was, he was in the world. The world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. And so we know from that that he came, but John is yet to say how he came. And this is so important. He wants people to realize God didn't just come in some spirit form. He, he came in a very specific way. He became flesh. He became one of us. He took on human form. He was 100% God and 100% man. He became one of us. He became flesh. This is a very important thing that John wants us to know. The second important thing he tells us about the Word is that He dwelt among us. Now, this is one of those times where, you know, when you read the Word that you see there in English, you kind of lose a bit of, you know, what it's saying, what it's meaning, there were several Greek words that Paul, or sorry, John could have used if he wanted just to communicate, you know, what we would think of as dwelling. But yet he uses this specific Greek word, and it's a very important one. It means to fix one's tabernacle and abide and live there. So John is, is purposely using this Greek word that speaks of tabernacling among us. And the reason that he uses that is because his Jewish audience 
would have been drawn to this word. It would have brought a clear picture in their mind right away when they hear this word to tabernacle among us. They would have thought right back to the Old Testament. They would have thought right back to the time in the wilderness when God had them build the tabernacle. And what was the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose of the tabernacle was it was God's dwelling place among the nation of Israel. And even as you can see it from this picture, the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp right in the center, and all the different tribes of Israel, they would pitch their tents around it, and and the center of it all was the presence of God, the dwelling place of God there in the tabernacle. And so when they hear that term tabernacle, that right away they would think God's dwelling place. God came and dwelt with us in the tabernacle, and so John is taking that beautiful concept of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God among the Israelites, and he's connecting it with the coming of the Word, the coming of Jesus. Just like God dwelt with you in the tabernacle in the wilderness, oh, the Word became flesh, He became one of us, and He dwelt, He tabernacled with us here on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, John is emphasizing this reality that that Jesus became one of us, that he tabernacled or dwelt with us for a specific purpose. He has a point here, and notice the next thing that he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this Greek word translated beheld, it has quite a deep meaning. It means to examine closely, to view attentively, to carefully study. So it's not just, oh, we just glanced at or or we just saw. No, when it says we beheld, we examined. We carefully studied Jesus. And so what John is telling us here is something great. When Jesus left heaven and became flesh and dwelt here on this earth, tabernacled among us, he gave us the wonderful privilege of beholding him. The wonderful privilege of being able to examine him, being able to study him, being able to to look at his life. John says, we beheld his glory. Notice he says, we. Not just I. There was a group of us that had this privilege of examining and studying the word that became flesh. Jesus Christ, God dwelling as man. And we beheld his glory refers to the unique splendor, the honor in Jesus' life, in His miracles, in His death, in His resurrection. So John's saying that, hey, we had the privilege of seeing the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And another wonderful term that John brings out here, the only begotten of the Father, that's a special status that you have between Son and Father. John uses a similar term in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The same type of mindset. Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. He's claiming Jesus is the Son of God. And he also says that they beheld Jesus' glory and they discovered that He was full of grace and truth. Now, John expounds upon that thought of Jesus being full of grace and truth in verses 16 through 18. And don't worry, we'll come back to verse 15 of John the Baptist's witness in a second. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John shares lots of great things here. The fullness of God came in Jesus. And as we looked at last week, He can be received by all. As many as He received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Everybody has that opportunity to make a choice to receive Jesus. And He goes on to say, and grace for grace. You know, I love that phrase because the idea is exchanging one thing for another. But typically when you exchange one thing for another, it's kind of different. But he's saying, you know what? You got grace and you get exchanged for even more grace. That God gives grace. And then when that grace maybe gets old to you, he just comes and he gives you more. It's just kind of abounding grace. It's always there. Grace for grace. Jesus is the source of that though. That's the key. He's the one who gives it. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
You know, this is something that if you look through the Gospels and you look through Romans, you look through a lot of the New Testament, you see this contrast between the law of Moses and what it ultimately brought, which was just a condemnation, judgment. It just reveals that we're a bunch of sinners. But Jesus brings something very different. He brings grace. He brings salvation. He brings truth. He's the one who fulfilled the law, but also brings the grace to save those who have broken it. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. Now this would be a very important statement to Jewish people at that time because they would recognize that throughout the Old Testament there's the reality that no one could see God and live. And so John's saying, man, what a privilege that we have. No one, as you know, has seen God at any time, but you know what? God became one of us so that we could see Him so that we could experience Him, so that we could behold Him and study Him and examine Him. As we're going to see later on, Philip's going to say to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. And Jesus is going to say, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't know me? I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what John is bringing out here. Hey, the one that you couldn't see, the one that in the Old Testament, if everyone would see God, they would die. Well, He became flesh so that we could see Him, so that we could behold Him, so that we could grasp who God is. You know, John says something very similar in 1 John, which is the other letter that he wrote, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That was from, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That's what we have seen and heard. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And starting that letter... John's making very clear, hey, all that we saw, all that we experienced, we were with Jesus for three years. We saw him. We examined him. We want to communicate that to you. And in the same way, that's what he's kind of bringing up here, that there were witnesses that spent this time beholding, examining, studying Jesus, and now they are able to give eyewitness testimony. They are able to stand before you and declare who this Jesus is because they personally experienced it and saw it for themselves. And so here in verse 14, there's this transition from who Jesus is to the people who personally witnessed Him and now can be a testimony of the fact that He is God. And He's going to call that first Witness to the stand, John the Baptist. Now, last week in verses 6 and 7, I just skimmed over it because I said, hey, this is referring to John the Baptist, and next week we're going to talk all about John the Baptist, so we'll wait till next week. Well, now it's next week, so let's start with verses 6 and 7, and then we'll move through what we hear about John the Baptist and the testimony that he gives concerning Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 says this, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now it's interesting, John's going to bring out seven different witnesses throughout this gospel to testify of Jesus, but the most unique, and I would say the most qualified to be an eyewitness testimony, the one who has just a a real special calling is this man by the name of John the Baptist. And the reason he's special and unique is because notice that he is specifically sent by God to bear witness to Jesus. That was his ultimate calling in life. That was what God gave him. I'm going to send you to bear witness of the coming Messiah. And the crazy thing about John the Baptist is this calling, it came upon his life before he was ever born. You know, typically you're not called into something until, you know, you're, you're older and, and then all of a sudden you give your life to the Lord and, and He calls you to do something. But this was a calling that God gave to this man before he was even born. Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, we're going to see an angel speaking to John the Baptist's father. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias is John the Baptist's dad, and he is a priest, and his wife Elizabeth, they were unable to have children. Elizabeth was barren, they're both getting old, and they thought, you know, that's never going to happen. We're never going to have kids, but you know what? As a priest, he was blessed to be chosen. It was pretty much one time in your life that you might get this privilege of getting to go into the temple and burn incense and pray on behalf of the nation of Israel. And so John, or Zacharias, goes in there, and while he's there, he has this amazing experience. An angel comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a son. Oh, wait a second here. My wife's barren. We're old. No, no, no. You are going to have a miraculous child. Your wife who's old and barren is going to be given the blessing of having a child and you're going to call him John. But you know what? He's going to have a special calling on his life. Even while he's in Elizabeth's womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is his ultimate calling, to turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord and make ready a people prepared for the Lord, prepared for the Messiah. So before John the Baptist is even born, here's his calling. You're going to come to prepare the nation of Israel for their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, when John got older and began his ministry, he was also unique. He had a unique look. And he had a unique diet. Matthew chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So here's some more uniqueness about John. He's wearing camel's hair that wasn't common. You know, he just kind of wraps that around his body, puts a leather belt on, and his diet is locusts. I'm sure we all would love to have that diet. Wild honey doesn't sound too bad, but, you know, honey on locusts doesn't sound so great. But, you know, the main part of his ministry was baptizing people. But not only did he baptize, he had a message. And the message that we see through the gospel is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the meaning of that is repent now. Why? When it speaks of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the Messiah is almost here. He's coming. Get ready for the Messiah. So in verse 15 now, we're going to see that the first way that John the Baptist bore witness of who Jesus is. Notice what we're told in verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now this is a very important statement. If you follow the chronological events of the Gospels, you'll discover that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. But notice what he says. He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Well, wait a second, John, that doesn't make any sense. How is Jesus before you when you're six months older than him? You came before him. And something else interesting is he's saying, Jesus is preferred before me. Now, in that culture, there was something that unfortunately is not in our culture, and that was age was very important and respected. And so if someone was older than you, they would always be preferred no matter what. Because that was something that you would do. You would always respect the elderly or anyone who's any bit older than you would always be preferred before you. Henry Morris wrote this about that time. In antiquity, it was widely held that chronological priority meant superiority. Men were humble about their own generation and really thought that their fathers were wiser than they. Incredible as that may sound to our generation. Sadly. So if John the Baptist is older than Jesus, then how can Jesus be before him? And why would Jesus be preferred before him? Because both of those things would go against the logic of the time. 
Well, the only way that's possible is that John the Baptist understood something about Jesus, that Jesus' existence didn't start in Bethlehem when he was born as a baby, that he's older than that, that he existed prior to that, just like John the author said that he is eternal. John the Baptist is ultimately making that same statement, that Jesus is the all-existing God. His testimony was rooted in an understanding of the pre-existence of Jesus. But you know what? I think what's good about John the Baptist is he knew that Jesus was before him in every sense of the word. Not just that he was actually existed before him, but that he's preferred before him, that he is God. And, and John has a real good understanding of who he is versus who the Messiah is. Now, we've already seen that we were told that John came for a witness. Okay, great. If you're a witness, that means you have a testimony. You, you, you have something to declare. Well, now we're going to see this first thing that John declares as a testimony concerning Jesus in verses 19 through 23. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to him, ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that, may, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Who do you say about your, or sorry, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now I want you to picture the religious leaders here. They're sitting back most likely in Jerusalem and they're starting to hear these reports of this really unique kind of strange guy who wears camel skin, who eats locusts and wild honey. But more important than this kind of weird guy in the wilderness is what he's doing. Because he's baptizing people. And he's telling them they need to repent. They need to get ready for the Messiah. So they're thinking, I mean, we got to find out who this guy is. we, we got to know what's going on because he's taking on a very important spiritual role in baptizing and, and calling people to repentance. And so they send some of their priests and their Levites with a question. Hey, who are you? We want to know who you are, especially with considering what you're doing. And so John the Baptist seems to understand that their question's really directed to the fact of, are you the Messiah? Is that why you're here? Is that why you're baptizing? Is that why you're calling people to repentance? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Because when they say, who are you? Notice his initial response is, I'm not the Christ. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So he's saying, I I'm not the Messiah. But you know, if someone came up to you and said, who are you? Your, your first response wouldn't probably be, I'm not Jesus. You know, obviously he understood that's really what you're getting at. That's what you want to know. So let's just start right away. I'm not the Messiah. William Barclay writes something interesting about this statement, though, in this answer. In the Greek, the word I is stressed by its position. It's as if John said, I'm not the Messiah, but if you only knew the Messiah is here. And this is one of those interesting things as well when you kind of look at, you know, the original language. So in the way in which he's saying and they say, who are you? It's like him saying, I'm not the Messiah, but he's here. As opposed to, no, I'm not the Messiah. Like, I'm not him, but he actually is alive and well right now. You should be ready for him. He's in our midst, but I'm not the one. Okay, well, if you're not the Messiah, what are you? Are you Elijah? Now, this might seem like an odd question. Elijah lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this. Are you the prophet Elijah? It's like, what, what, what do you believe in reincarnation? You know, why would you think that? You know, it seems like kind of an odd question, but it's not an odd question if you understand that this is something that was prophesied in Malachi. Malachi prophesied something about Elijah. Notice what we're told in Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, something that the religious leaders missed is the fact that there would be two comings of Jesus. His first coming was to be the suffering servant who died. His second coming is going to be the ruling king. They wanted the first coming to be like the second. They wanted the ruling king right away. So what this is referring to is the fact that Elijah will proceed 
The great dreadful day of the Lord, which is speaking of his second coming. And so they read this and they think, well, surely that's speaking of the first time the Messiah comes. And so it makes sense that they would say, are you, are you the Elijah that was prophesied? Are you the one who's coming before the Messiah? And so this isn't some odd question. It's they know their Bible and they're wondering, is this you? And John says, no, no, that's not me. I'm not Elijah. Okay. How about this? Are you the prophet? Notice they didn't say, are you a prophet? Like many of the prophets that we've had throughout our history, they are more specific. Are you the prophet? Once again, they had reason for saying this because Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, Then the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So Moses is saying, hey, God's going to raise up another prophet like me. You better listen to him. Now, the interesting thing that we're going to see through Scripture is Moses is actually referring to Jesus. Unfortunately, they did not listen to him, but they knew that this was coming. They knew that there would be this prophet that would come. And so they're saying, okay, if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet spoken of by Moses? Once again, John says, no, I'm not that prophet. All right, well, if you're not the Messiah, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, then who are you that we can give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, this is a great question. You know, John could have had a lot of different answers to this, and I think it really shows a lot about who this man is when they say, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? Notice what he says. I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You see, the religious leaders knew, hey, we know of all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Okay, you're not him. We know of the prophecy concerning the coming of Elijah. Okay, you're not him. We know the prophecy concerning the prophet. You're not him. Well, then who are you? Well, there's another prophecy. There's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied about someone. You forgot him because that's who I am. Isaiah prophesies this in Isaiah 43. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John's answer to the question, who are you? Who do you say about, or what do you say about yourself? He says, hey, I am the one Isaiah prophesied about. I'm that voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, this should bring to their understanding something important because Isaiah 40 is speaking of someone who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. I'm that guy, ultimately, is what John or uh, the Baptist is saying. But notice, in that day, when a king was going to come and visit various parts of the kingdom, there was kind of an advanced team that would be sent to prepare the roads because they wanted the king's chariot to have smooth sailing. If there were roads that didn't exist and it was just going through a bunch of brush, they would have to clear all that. They'd have to fill potholes. They'd have to you know, make it nice and smooth so that the king could get to wherever he was going. And that team's job was to prepare the way for the king to go. And Isaiah's using that you know, picture to say, hey, there's going to be someone coming to prepare the way for the king, the Messiah. But he's not going to prepare the way in the sense that you think of physically, you know, filling in potholes and, and smoothing out roads. No, he's preparing people. He's preparing hearts. He's getting people ready for the coming of the Messiah. That is the ministry of John the Baptist. That's what he's doing in his baptisms. That's what he's doing in his message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to prepare your heart. The Messiah is about to arrive. You're not ready. Get ready. The king is coming and you need to be ready for him. So John's saying, hey, this is what I am. I'm just the one, the voice. I've just been sent with the message, the message of preparation. But you know what? He could have said a lot of things about himself. Who are you? What do you mean who I am? I'm the, the son of the great priest Zacharias. I'm the miraculously born child to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Haven't you heard of me? I was filled with the Holy Spirit since I was in my mother's womb. I'm the great man of God. That's who I am. He doesn't say anything like that. John realized a very important truth. It doesn't really matter who I am. What matters is who Jesus is. 
What matters is who Jesus is and what my relationship is to him. What matters is who Jesus is and who I am in regard to who Jesus is. And this is so important for us to understand as well. When asked the question, who are you? What's your identity? So often people, and sadly many Christians as well, they're seeking identity, they're, they're, they're focusing on and defining themselves apart from the relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. For many people, they find their identity in their family. Hey, hey, I'm the son of so-and-so. That's what John could have said. Look, I mean, Zacharias is my dad. But that's not where he found his identity. Others in their profession, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher. You know, that's who I am and what I do. Others find their identity in the past and who they used to be. Man, I was the captain of the football team. I, I was quite a star back in high school. Oh, I was the prom queen. You know, what I used to be is what I identify with because I don't want to identify with what I am now. But the place we need to find our identity is in Christ and who we are in Him. And what he's called us to do. Who are you? Well, as we looked at last week, <laughs> I am the one privileged to be a child of God. That's who I am. What a wonderful reality. I'm the one that God loves <laughs> enough that he adopted me as his child. Who are you? Well, I could also look at what I'm called by God to do. I'm his servant in a certain capacity, which is all of us have different callings. So first, the religious leaders ask John the Baptist who he is. Well, now they're going to ask another question that builds on that first question because they didn't get the answer that they were hoping for. Verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who come, coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Beth, uh, Beth Arba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John had just said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I, I'm not the prophet. And so the religious leaders say, okay, fine. If that's the case, why do you baptize? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not... The prophets. Now, something important to understand about this is, you know, today we think of baptism in, in a different concept than they would back then. You know, pretty much, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. That's something commanded by God. But back in that time, Jews never baptized other Jews. You would maybe sometimes baptize yourself in a, in a mitzvah. You know, it was, you would get underwater and then you would get in there. And that was mainly a ceremonial cleansing because you touched a dead body or, or something kind of, you know, made you unclean. And so you would go in there yourself, but you wouldn't have a priest or someone else dunk you. There was only one group that would be baptized by a Jew, baptized more specifically by a Jewish religious leader. And that was Gentiles. If Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism, this was one of the steps that they had to take. They had to be baptized by a Jewish priest, and before they were baptized, they had to repent of their old Gentile sinful ways so that they now could become part of the Jewish, uh, Jewish religious belief system. And so what's interesting here is that what John is doing is treating the Jews like he would the Gentiles in the sense that you are a bunch of sinners who need to repent. Because the Jewish religious leaders would say, what do you think you're doing baptizing another Jews? They don't need to repent. It's those wicked Gentiles that are the sinners, those wicked Gentiles that need repentance. What do you think you're doing? Who gave you authority to do something like this, John? I mean, if you're the Messiah, we get it. If you're the Elijah, we could understand. If you're the prophet that was spoken of, then, then yeah. But you're none of those things. So, so why do you think you have the authority to be baptizing people and calling them to repentance? Henry Morris wrote this. The novelty in John's case and the sting behind the practice was that he applied to the Jews a ceremony which was held to be appropriate in the case of Gentiles coming newly into the faith, but to Jews in the same class was horrifying. So John, who gave you this authority? Why do you do this? 
Let's see his answer. I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. You know, John does something here that Jesus did a lot with these religious leaders, and that is he actually doesn't even answer their question. He doesn't really give them the reason why he does it. Hey, why are you baptizing? Who is giving you authority? Why are you doing this? He doesn't really focus on himself at all. That's something I love about John. You know, even when they say, who are you? It's really like, well, it's, I'm connected with Jesus. I'm connected with the Messiah. Well, 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 why are you doing this? Once again, it's not really about him, not elevating him. And well, I'll tell you why I have the authority. Do you know who I am? He doesn't get into any of that. He doesn't try to, you know, prove why he has the right to do this. Once again, he's just pointing to the Messiah. I baptize with water. But you know what? There stands one among you who do not know. It's he who's coming after me and is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to lose. That's who you need to focus on. All I do is, is dump people in water, but there's someone coming that's so much greater than I am. And we're going to see in verse 33 that John's going to say, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. All I'm doing is dunking people in water. I'm challenging them to repent. What I'm doing is to motivate people to change, but it doesn't have any power to change them. It's what Jesus' baptism, the Messiah's baptism, has power to change people because it has the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize you with the thing that can actually change you. I'm just putting you in water. I'm just trying to motivate you to repent, to prepare you for the coming of the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the one who is so much greater than I am. And we see how John viewed the greatness of Jesus versus himself when he makes this statement, I am not even worthy to loose his sandal straps. Now to us, that doesn't really make much sense. But in that time, any rabbi was really allowed to take whoever was their student and kind of require them to do pretty much anything that a slave was required to do. So if you were the student of a rabbi, you know, you might get stuck with some pretty, you know, not so pleasant duties that the rabbi could give to you. And it was perfectly acceptable, but there was limits. Slaves could be told you could do anything, but if you were a student of the rabbi, you didn't go that low. There were limits to what you can do. And one of the limits was feet. You were not required to remove the sandals and ultimately clean the feet that would have been gross and nasty walking on those dirt roads all day. That was for the lowly servant. That was their job. So when John says, hey, I'm not even worthy to loose his sandal, what he's saying is, I'm not even worthy to do what the lowliest servant does. The job that nobody wants to have. The one that we would think, well, I'm definitely above that. I'm definitely superior to that. He says, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals and take them off his feet. I think one of the best qualities that we see in John the Baptist is not only his humility, but the humility is stemmed from his recognition of who he truly is versus who God truly is. Our problem, the reason that we ever have pride is because we miss that. We think we are greater than we really are. We elevate ourselves to a place that we don't belong. We have higher thoughts of ourselves that we should, and we kind of lower God down, elevate ourselves up, and that brings pride. When we truly recognize where God is and who God is and what we are, we should have the mindset that John the Baptist had. I'm not even worthy to loose his sandals. When you compare me to the Messiah, me to Jesus Christ, I'm just a wretched sinner and he's a perfect God. And John recognized this and it brought humility to him. And so John's testimony to these religious leaders, hey, I'm not any of these things you ask, I'm just the voice. But now he's going to give an even more powerful and convincing evidence for Jesus being God. Notice what he says in verses 29 through 31. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. 
Now, remember I told you as we looked at the background information of this letter that this is not a chronological letter. These events are not happening in a chronological order. They're kind of just thrown in there. Some events might happen prior to others, but be, be actually recorded later in the book. But this is one where it's like, well, when did this take place? When is it that John saw Jesus and made this amazing declaration? Well, when you put all the Gospels together, you actually can find the answer to that. What happened prior to this is that John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And Jesus has also already spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And now it is just two weeks after Jesus' return from being in the wilderness that he's now walking by the Jordan. And there is John doing his ministry, baptizing people, calling people to repentance, and he sees Jesus. And we're going to note in a moment why he now knows Jesus is the Messiah. And he looks and he says, behold, I want your attention. Remember that word, not just look, but hey, I want you guys to examine this person. I want you to study this person. Why? Why do you want us to, to, to look this direction and, and behold this individual, study this individual? I'll tell you why. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist, once again, is using a statement that'd be very significant to the Jewish listeners of his day. When he calls Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that would paint a very specific picture in their mind. That they would immediately thought of several things in the Old Testament, probably coming back maybe first to uh, either, you know, um, Probably Abraham and his prophetic word. Remember Isaac's like, hey, uh, you know, we got the wood, we got the fire, but, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. That was a prophetic statement of like, hey, you know, I'm having to actually sacrifice my son. God's going to stop that. But I'm speaking of the future of he is going to sacrifice his own son. They, they definitely would have thought of the Passover lamb. There at the dinner table in Egypt and, and every year after as they celebrate and think about. But then even more specifically, because he's connecting it to taking away the sin of the world, they would have thought of the Levitical sacrificial lamb. The one that had to be sacrificed to atone for the sin of the nation of Israel. They probably also would have thought back to Isaiah and his prophecy that they spoke of the, the lamb who was going to be brought to the slaughter. Speaking of the Messiah. So when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, you know, there would have been lots of thoughts going through these Jewish minds. And maybe some of them might have been gasping, thinking, wait a second, that type that, you, that you're bringing up here, are you kind of, are you saying that that is fulfilled in this man? Are you saying this man is that Lamb who's going to take away the sin of the world? I think something interesting to note about the Lamb as we see different things. Genesis 22, we saw that with Abraham. But really the Old Testament question is kind of, where's the lamb? Where is he? That's kind of what we see throughout the Old Testament because it's all kind of pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And now we have John, whose whole goal is to declare Jesus as God. Now it's like, let me answer the question, where's the lamb? Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where is He? He's right there in the person of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Something I think is even greater. Revelation chapter 5, we now see a whole group of people declaring worthy is the Lamb. So where is the Lamb is the cry of the Old Testament. Behold the Lamb is the hope of the New Testament. And worthy is the Lamb is the summation of eternity because that's what we're going to be doing, crying out in praise to God. Worthy are you because you were the one who was slain on behalf of us. I think it's interesting to think, you know, Jesus is many things. He's got lots of titles throughout Scripture. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the true vine, the wonderful counselor, the priest, the prophet, the king. There's many titles that he has, but really I think before them all, the one that's kind of the foundation, the one that's so vital is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We see that from Genesis to Revelation of how vital that is in Jesus Christ. You know, but something I love about this message of the Lamb, as you go from Scripture and you start in Genesis, it kind of grows wider and becomes more encompassing as we get now to John. Let me say what I mean here. 
Abel, he brings a lamb for a sacrifice, but was for himself alone. So you kind of a, a lamb for an individual. In Exodus, you had the household. You go and provide a lamb for the household. So there was a lamb for a family. In Leviticus, the people were instructed to sacrifice a lamb to atone for the nation. So you have a lamb for the nation of Israel. So you've got the individual, the family, only the nation of Israel. It's growing. But now in John, wonderfully, the sacrificial lamb of God, it's for the sin of the world. Now we have the lamb who sacrifices for everybody. Not just for an individual, not just for a family, not just for a specific nation, but for everyone. The sacrifice of the Lamb has all the capacity to forgive every sin and cleanse every sinner. It's big enough for the whole world. Well, that's a pretty powerful testimony of John. You can just stop right there and say, all right, John, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's clear what you're saying about him. It's clear what you believe about him. Wow, that's a powerful testimony. You can leave the stand. You're done. No, 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 I got more. Let me share something else that's even more powerful. Notice what he goes on to say in verses 32 through 34. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him, and I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now remember, John has already baptized Jesus. That event has already transpired. And he wants to share about that. He gives us some information about what he experienced, what he saw. Because here's a man who baptized people all the time. What was unique about his baptism of Jesus? How is it that he knew that he was baptizing the Messiah when the Messiah shows up? Well, the reason that he knew was because God says, I'm going to give you a sign, John. I know you don't know who the Messiah is, but I'm going to give you a sign that you will know who the Messiah is. And this is a sign. But he who sent me, being God, to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. So John, you're going to know who the Messiah is because when you baptize him and you bring him back out of the water, you're going to see something that you won't see with anybody else. The Holy Spirit is going to descend and it's going to remain on this individual. That guy is going to be the Messiah. Okay, that's a pretty good sign. I could get that one. Yeah, I'm sure I can see that and know that. And so did that happen? Well, Matthew's gospel records this event. Let's see what takes place. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So God says, I'm going to give you a sure sign of who this is. The Holy Spirit's going to come down. It's going to remain upon Jesus. That's exactly what he sees. I'm sure he's finally just blown away. Here he is. This is the guy. And that's why a few weeks later when he walks by, he can look and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how can I know that? How can I be confident that's who it is? Because God specifically told me, Hey, when you baptize this person and they come up and the Spirit of God descends on them and remains on them, that's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. And that's why John says in verse 34, As I have seen and testified, that this is the Son of God. I'm confident. I know. I've seen it. And I'm testifying to you. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Father has specifically told me the sign that I now know and am confident of that this is Jesus. A very powerful witness that Jesus is God. A reliable witness because he has confirming evidence from God. A reliable witness because he saw with his own eyes these things. That's what we talk about. Eyewitness testimony. I experienced it. I saw it. I, I want 
now to do something with it. And this is something I want to just end with a challenge. Earlier I said, put yourself in the shoes of, of the jury. As you listen to John the Baptist and his testimony, I want you to examine, I want you to think of it. You know, does it help prove that Jesus is God? But I want you now to have a new challenge. I want you to put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Notice that he has this testimony from what he has experienced, what God has revealed to him, what he saw in the person of Jesus Christ, and notice what he does with it. He doesn't just sit back and say, wow, that was wonderful for me. I'll just hold that to myself and treasure that for the rest of my life, and that'll just be between me and God. No, I have this testimony, and I want to let it be known. I want to declare, I want to point to Jesus Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to declare to others this testimony that I have so that they too can know who Jesus is. And so my challenge for you, my challenge for myself, is that we would put ourselves in that role of the person giving the testimony of what Jesus has revealed to us, of what Jesus has done in our life. If you've accepted Christ, if you've asked him to become your personal savior, you know what? You have a testimony. You have a testimony of what you were like before you came to know Jesus Christ. You have a testimony of when that moment happened, when you finally recognized who he is and put your trust in him and asked him to forgive your life. But you know what? You have the greatest part of your testimony. It's not what you were. Uh, it's not even that moment that you accepted him. You have this part of your testimony of look at what God has done now. Look at how he has changed me from what I used to be to what I am today. And with those people who have known you before Christ and after Christ, that is the most powerful thing that you have to help them come to know Jesus Christ because they're going to want to know, why have you changed? Why don't you speak the way that you used to? Why don't you act the way that you used to? Why are you so different? Let me tell you why. Jesus Christ changed me. I want to tell you my testimony. You know, you talk and you try to bring apologetics to people, and I'm not opposed to apologetics by any means. I, I think it's great to have a defense for what you believe. But you know what? People will shoot down all sorts of different arguments that you give, but there's one argument that's so difficult to shoot down, and that's a changed life. Look at my life. You knew what I was. And look at what I am now. And I'm declaring to you, he's the reason. That's so hard to deny. Oh, I don't know if I can believe the evidence for this or the evidence for that. Well, how about the evidence of my life? How about the evidence of what Jesus Christ has done to transform me? And so my challenge to you is that you would look for opportunities, just like we see here with John. I want to declare my testimony to those who don't know, because guess what? There's plenty of people in the jury box of the world looking at Christianity, looking at Jesus, making a decision to, most of them reject him. And the sad reality is they're rejecting him not based on true evidence. They're rejecting him not based on true knowledge of who he is. They're rejecting him based on what the world claims, on their different thoughts that aren't accurate. They need eyewitness testimony from someone that they know who can point them to the truth of, no, that's not what Jesus is like. That's not who Jesus is. Let me tell you what he's like. Let me show you what he's done in my life. Let me declare the testimony that I have. This world is in desperate need of people who are followers of Christ to share that testimony so that they can see Jesus for who he is, not for what the world declares him as. And I want to give you a practical challenge. You know, we go on mission trips. Everybody on the team has to be ready to share their testimony because that's something that you do often. And we try to get every team member to share their testimony in five minutes or less. And the reason for that is people don't usually want to give you all day to talk about your whole life. And if you've never thought through your testimony, you might think if I called you right now and said, hey, share your testimony in five minutes. If you've never thought through it, I guarantee you can't do it in five minutes. Your life has been a long life. There's been a lot of things that have transpired. And so you got to think through that and decide, what is it I'm going to share? But more importantly, what is it I'm not going to share? And who's going to be the focus of this? You know, sometimes you get people coming up and they spend 30 minutes talking about how sinful they were. And oh, I accepted Jesus. And they sit down. And it's like, eh, we kind of missed the point of what we're trying to focus on here. But I would encourage you, take time to think through your life. Think through some just highlights of what you want to say of what you were before Christ. But get away from that quickly. Get to who he is. Get to when you accepted him, and most importantly, get to what has he done 
to change you. And I would encourage you, be ready if you've got that opportunity where someone's going to give you five minutes of their time, maybe 10 minutes of their time. Hey, I'm going to take that advantage. I'm going to share my testimony with them. But if you haven't taken the time to think it through, you haven't taken the time to, to prepare that, one, you probably won't be as confident to do it. And two, if you start, that person might not give you the time to finish uh, if you haven't shortened it down. So that would just be a practical challenge to help you hopefully put this into practice. Share your testimony. Be like John the Baptist. But you know, we saw that in the Old Testament, where's the lamb? In the New Testament, he's the hope. I want to read in Revelation, the one that's worshipped, because I want us to close worshipping the lamb as we take communion together. What does it say in Revelation 5, 8 through 14? Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which was in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. I love this picture. Pretty much every creature that there are, the angels in heaven, thousands upon thousands and thousands, we're just going to be declaring the truth. Worthy is the Lamb, the one who was slain for us.